Welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene and I'll be telling stories of true crime, about murder, other tragedies and sometimes some events of interest involving people who had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales and its surrounding districts, as convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche or moved on to seek their fortune. The stories are based in the 19th and early 20th century. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open sourced information, family research, state archive records and trove newspapers. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Sound effects by Sound Bible. I'd like to ask those who do listen to my podcast to please subscribe and give a rating. It will assist me to improve and adjust content to make it better. Everyone needs feedback, right? Please feel free to email me. My address is on my podcast page. If there is any misinformation or you would like to find out more, please contact me here. This episode contains information of the fifth hanging at Maitland Jail, New South Wales. Michael Cullohane was charged for the rape of Mrs Anne Milsom at Aberdeen, New South Wales on the 10th of May 1851 and hanged thereafter at Maitland Jail on the 2nd of October 1851. He was recorded as being 36 years of age at this time, but may have been older. It was difficult to find information for Michael Callaghan, as his surname, due to his Irish accent and the literary skills of the recorder, can be pronounced in many different ways. He was also known as Bad English Mick. So goes the conundrum. But due to his approximate age, origin and date, his details may be as follows. Michael Collahane was convicted at Cork Island in 1825 of rape and sentenced for life in the colonies and transported to Norfolk Island. In 1832 he was assigned to William Johnston at Bathurst, New South Wales. In 1847 he obtained his ticket of leave at Port Macquarie and in 1848 he obtained his ticket of leave passport on recommendation of the Commissioner of Crown Lands Armadale. This allowed him to work on squatter runs and so enabling him to obtain work with Thomas Simpson Hall at Darkbrook Station. I generally tried to input information about the person's history and tell the story of how and when they came to Australia and what they did while they were here. Michael Collahane's information, however, is a bit of a mystery because I am not 100% sure of the spelling of his surname. I could not find any BDM references if he was married or had any children. It seems he did not. Therefore, I cannot tell his story. I have the history of William Johnston and Thomas Simpson Hall. Newspaper reports state that he worked for Mr. Hall at Dartbrook, so I can give a short recount about Thomas Simpson Hall. On the 13th of June 1802, George Hall, along with his wife Mary and four of their nine children, arrived at Port Jackson in the colony of New South Wales, on board the ship Coromandel. He received a land grant 
of a hundred acres and two sheep. On the 14th of April, 1825, George Hall made an application for Hunter Valley property. Surveyor Henry Dangar measured 3,000 acres near Dart Brook, which extended from the future village of Aberdeen and three miles up the brook. In 1831, this was granted and George's sons were also allotted acreage and all had frontage on the Dart Brook. By the time of George's death in 1840, he had substantial land holdings from Sydney to the far north of New South Wales. Thomas Simpson Hall was the most active of all the brothers in the Hunter region. He accepted magisterial duties, was a member of the First Scone District Council and committee member of the Scone Benevolent Association as well as contributing to the building of the first St. John's Presbyterian Church in Musselbrook. From Dartbrook, he controlled the breeding program for stocking the huge hall runs to the north. He realised a need for quality working dogs and developed the Hall's Healer. They were called Hall's Healers because of their ability to shift stock by nipping at the heels of wayward cattle to hurry them along. Hall had imported drover's curs from Northumbria and that they were a bobtail type with a blue coat. The mating of this dog with a dingo meant that the pups could be either red or blue in colour, a trait that endures to this day. A cattle dog statue in Aberdeen commemorates Thomas Simpson Hall and his contribution to the breed. Michael Collahane was working at Dartbrook Station to Thomas Simpson Hall when the crime occurred. The Maitland Mercury and Hunter River General Advertiser Wednesday, 3rd of September, 1851 Maitland Circuit Court Before His Honour, Mr Justice Dickinson Tuesday, 2nd of September, 1851 Rape Michael Callahan was indicted for assaulting and ravishing Anne Milsom against her will at Aberdeen on the 10th of May 1851. Mr Purfoy appeared for the defence. Attorney Mr Baker. The witnesses called were Anne Milsom, Charles Milsom, Mary Waldron and Richard Bodley. Mrs Milsom is a married woman, wife of Charles Milsom, who resides about seven miles from Scone. On the 10th of May, she went to Scone Pound to release some cattle, leaving home early in the morning. Her husband came after her, and a little before sundown, they left Scone with the cattle, 12 head. One of the cows got sick on the road, and about three miles from Scone, got unable to proceed. After some delay, Milsom went home with the remaining cattle, leaving Mrs. Milsom with the cow. It was moonlight, but rather cloudy at intervals. In case the cow remained ill, Milsom was to return, and they were to pass the night there, so Mrs. Milsom got some wood together. She heard a man riding up galloping, and she drew on one side under the shade of a tree. Prisoner, who was the man, and who was known to her by the name of Mickey Bad English, called out, Where are you, Mrs. Milsom? 
After he had so called twice, she stepped out, thinking her husband had perhaps sent him to assist her. Some conversation followed, and she went towards the cow, when prisoner, who had got off his horse, seized her by the shoulders, and threw her with great force to the ground, and kept her down with his foot while he looked around. The witness then related what followed. She struggled and got away from him, and screamed murder, holding by a fence to protect herself, but he threw her down again and effected his purpose, in spite of her continued resistance. Prisoner subsequently offered witness a money order, begging her to say nothing about it, and she did not take the order, and made no reply except beg him to go away. He refused to go unless she swore she'd not say one word, or he would kill her. She swore as he desired, and he then went away, after threatening to kill both her and her husband if she did say anything. Prisoner was there altogether about twenty minutes. The prisoner rode off in the direction of Scone, and some time after she heard a horse galloping up from that direction, and heard prisoner speaking in Irish to his horse. She got away from the spot, and prisoner passed. Witness's husband returned to her some short time after, and witness immediately told him all that had occurred. The paper produced was one that she found on the ground on gathering up her things afterwards. Cross-examined. Witness had only half a tumbler of colonial beer to drink that day. The nearest house was three-quarters of a mile from the spot where prisoner committed the outrage on her. That was Mr. William Dangar's house. The time might be between eight and nine o'clock in the evening. The witness was closely cross-examined as to the exact circumstances under which the offence was committed, and her disposition at the Scone Police Office was put in and read, in which there were some differences in minor points but the main facts were described in the same way. Charles Milson corroborated his wife's evidence up to the time he left her with the sick cow. Witness rode on homewards and saw prisoner standing at the door of his neighbour, Mary Ann Waldron. Mrs Waldron asked witness where his wife was. Witness told how and where he left her and said he was going home and then to return with some refreshment for his wife as she might have to stay all night with the cow. That was about half past seven o'clock. Witness rode home, got some tea ready, and then returned to his wife on horseback, not in any great hurry, with some tea in a bottle. The moon had been then gone down. On reaching the spot where he left his wife, he had to call twice for his wife, who then appeared and told him she had been nearly murdered, and that a rape had been committed upon her. She told witness who the man was and the particulars. She appeared very weak and much frightened, and could scarcely be got home. Witness did not see prisoner again that night after seeing him at Waldron's door, where he heard what passed between Mrs. Waldron and witness. Mrs. Waldron remembered Milsom calling at her place that evening. Prisoner had but just previously brought a message to her, and remained at her door till he went away again. Prisoner was within hearing of all that Milsom said to witness. Prisoner left her house shortly afterwards, 
going in the direction of his master's house, Mr. Hall, which was a contrary direction to the Scone Road. There was no fence between the roads, only the bush. Some considerable time afterwards, after witness had gone to bed, Milsom brought his wife to witness's house, and Mrs. Milsom remained there the night. Mrs. Milsom was greatly frightened and very weak, and told witness what had happened. Chief Constable Budley knew prisoner as Michael Collahane, a ticket of leave holder in the service of Mr. Hall. Witness apprehended prisoner on a charge of rape on Sunday, the 11th of May. Prisoner made no remark except that he had never seen the woman. Prisoner was commonly called Mickey Bad English. Mr. Purfoy addressed the jury for the defence. After commenting on the importance of the case before them, as affecting the life of the prisoner, he noticed that the evidence as to the alleged offence was solely that of the prosecutrix, Mrs. Milsom, whose evidence must therefore be closely examined. Rape was a charge easy to make, as needing only the evidence of one person, and was on that very account the more difficult to be rebutted by the accused person. His only dependence, therefore, must be that the jury would scrutinise the evidence of that one witness and see if it was consistent in all its parts, now and with her previous deposition. Was Mrs. Milsom's evidence so clear and so consistent as to stand this examination? He contended that it was not, and that even if the jury believed the prisoner was with her at all on that evening, there was so much doubt about what really occurred whether with her consent or without it, that at the utmost it would merely be a charge of assault, which was a verdict the jury could deliver if they chose. The learned counsel then closely commented on all the circumstances to prove this position. Dwelling on the discrepancies between the prosecutrix evidence at Scone and that given that day, and on the improbability of the prisoner committing such an act of violence, on the high road at such an early hour of the evening. Mr. Purfoy called Chief Constable Charles Fox of Musselbrook, who had known prisoner by sight several years and had not heard anything against his character. His Honour, in summing up, told the jury they must satisfy themselves whether or not the prisoner did commit a rape on the person of Anne Milsom and against her consent. His Honour then read through the evidence for Barton, commenting on it as he proceeded. That the prisoner did complete the offence was clear. If the jury believed Mrs. Milson's evidence, but there still remained the question whether it was against her consent, and they must from their opinion on this most material question from all its circumstances, as well as from Mrs. Milson's direct replies to the queries bearing on that point. As testing her evidence in this respect, his honour read over the evidence at the Scone Police Office, pointing out the extent and nature of the discrepancies between her statements then and now. So far as her direct replies went, the case was completely made out against the prisoner. If the jury thought that her remaining evidence was consistent with this conclusion, and that the discrepancies pointed out did not affect her credibility. If they were not satisfied beyond any reasonable doubt, the offence was completed, 
and against the consent of the prosecutrix, they would acquit the prisoner. If they thought he assaulted and ill-used her without completing the offence, they would acquit him of the felony and find him guilty of assault. But if they found themselves satisfied beyond any reasonable doubt that the prisoner did complete the offence and against her consent, then their duty would be to find him guilty of the offence as charged. The jury retired for a few minutes and returned with a verdict of guilty. His Honour impressively addressed the prisoner. The prisoner, Michael Collahane, had been convicted by an intelligent jury of the crime of rape, and he must say that he was perfectly satisfied with their verdict, and he thought all persons who had heard the evidence must be so also. From an early period in the history of the law in England, the crime of rape had been punished with death. Recently, the legislature of England had seen fit to abolish that punishment, although it was at the time remarked by that eminent statesman, Sir Robert Peel, that he was afraid the time might come when the legislature would have to retrace their steps. And he, his honour, had heard and believed that since that time, crime of rape had been committed much more frequently than before in England. A proposition was also made to the legislature of this colony to abolish the punishment of death for rape. But the legislature, taking into account the difference in the circumstances of this colony and England, and the numerous cases in which women were necessarily left alone in lonely situations, refused to make the change. Subsequently, a prisoner was convicted of rape and sentenced to death, and a question was submitted to the Supreme Court by a learned counsel, whether it was not illegal to pass such a sentence in the colony, inasmuch as in England the legislature had abolished the punishment of death for rape. The whole of the judges, however, held that the sentence was perfectly legal. If he now, therefore, was to take the course of ordering sentence of death to be simply recorded, it would be taken on himself to reverse the decision of the legislature, unless there were circumstances of mitigation to justify him. He could not, however, see in the present case any such circumstances of mitigation. On the contrary, the crime was marked by unusual features of atrocity. It could not be pleaded here that the prisoner was excited by sudden passion, or that he came suddenly of the unfortunate woman in such a position as to offer unexpected temptation. On the contrary, he had evidently ridden to the spot on hearing from her husband on the unprotected position she was left in, and had then, under circumstances of great violence, committed the great outrage she had detailed in evidence. He could not, therefore, hold out any hope of mercy to the prisoner, and could only urge him to use the short time left him in this world to make his peace with God, and to prepare himself for another world. He now sentenced the prisoner to be taken from hence to the place from whence he came, thence to be taken on a day to be hereafter fixed to the place of execution and there to be hanged by the neck 
until he was dead, and might God have mercy on his soul. The prisoner, who appeared little moved, was then taken away. Friday, 5th of September, 1851. Michael Collahane was indicted for assaulting Mrs. Anne Milson at Aberdeen on the 10th of May last. The Attorney General conducted the prosecution and Mr. Purfoy the defence. The jury returned a verdict of guilty. The particulars as disclosed in evidence are not fit for publication. Wednesday, 1st of October, 1851. The condemned prisoner, Michael Collahane. Tomorrow, Thursday, at 9 o'clock, Michael Collahane, who was convicted at the late Assises of a rape on Anne Milsom, is to be hung at the jail, East Maitland. We understand that exertions have been made to get his sentence commuted, and that Mrs. Milsom joined in signing a petition to the executive to the effect, but without avail. Wednesday, 8th of October, 1851. Maitland Mercury. Punishment of death for rape. The execution in Maitland on Thursday last of the unfortunate man Collahane for rape has excited a painful sensation amongst the community in this neighbourhood and has tended materially to strengthen the growing public feeling against the expediency of continuing the punishment of death for rape. A general impression prevailed that the man's life would be spared, and not a few are disposed to blame the executive for having carried the sentence of death into effect. We cannot say that we shared in the common expectation, or that we think that any blame attaches to the executive for allowing the law in this instance to take its course. There was, in the case, no one circumstance to extenuate the unhappy man's guilt. Hearing by accident of Mrs. Milson's alone position in the bush, he rode specially to the spot for the purpose of committing the crime. The executive appear to have taken a similar view of the case, and, taking that view, they no doubt felt that they could not justifiably interfere to prevent the law from being carried out. To have done so would have been practically to abrogate the existing law. For if the punishment of death had been reunited in a case in which there were admittedly no extenuating circumstances, the executive could never have sanctioned any future executions for rape, and the law would have thus been subverted by those whose bounded duty it is to see its provisions carried into effect, however painful the performance of that duty may sometimes be to their feelings. The responsibility, then, of the late execution for rape lies, not on the executive, but on the lawmakers of the colony. They have decreed that the crime of rape shall be punished with death, and they alone have no right to abrogate the law. Unquestionably, it may with a good deal of force be maintained by those who are favourable to the continuance of the present law here, that the peculiar circumstances of this colony arising from the scattered state of the population, the disparity of the sexes, etc., require that the law should throw an extra degree of protection around females to secure them from aggression, and hence 
that while it might be quite safe in the mother country to abolish the punishment of death for rape, it would not be safe for the lawmakers of this colony to follow the example. The sacrifice of human life is a fearful responsibility to incur, and one from which women, more especially, naturally and instinctively recoil. The conduct of Mrs. Milsom in the recent case, impressing so earnestly that Cahalane's life might be spared, while it speaks highly for her high-mindedness, warrants the presumption that if she had been conscious when commencing the proceedings, that the man's life would be the penalty exacted. She would in all probability have abstained from lodging the complaint against him preferring rather to submit quietly to the grievous wrong she had sustained at his hands than to set in motion a process which would result in his life being forfeited to the laws of the country. And such a feeling will be found to be generally prevalent in the minds of all parties concerned in similar cases. Note, in regards to hangings at Maitland Jail, there was a conviction of rape in 1897 and Charles Hines was hanged on the 21st of May 1897 for this crime. Extra note, Anne Milsom died 1st of July 1865, aged 50 years, accidentally killed by a kick of a horse at Overton near Musselbrook. She seems to have been a resilient, tough and hard-working woman. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. Hope you return to hear about more stories about the people and places of Morpeth and its surrounding districts. Bye for now. <laughs>